Yes, again, in this afternoon session, noontime session, we want to welcome all of you that are here. It's a joy to have you present with us in these meetings. And uh, some of you might be new to this weekend, this Kingdom Fellowship weekend, though it's been going on for several years. This might be a new experience for you. And I just want to share a word that might help you understand what goes on here. And that word is this, that it is our desire, it is our purpose, that there would be an atmosphere of heat and light, such an atmosphere of heat and light where carnality does not feel comfortable, where sin cannot feel at home, where tendencies towards this world's offerings, this world's illusions, and this world's offers lose its attractiveness, and we find ourselves before the cross of Calvary. And so if there is in our hearts a some kind of a craving for some pleasure or some kind of temporary satisfaction. It is right to eat a bowl of ice cream. It is right to enjoy a soft pillow and a warm comforter in the wintertime. It's right to have some pleasures and benefits in life, but we want an atmosphere in kingdom fellowship where carnality needs to be crucified. That is what we want to do here. And so in an atmosphere of worship, that certainly contributes to an end to myself. When our eyes are upon Christ in whom alone we stand. Thank you, Brother Tanner. We're going to save our announcements for the end of this session. We just feel like we want to move straight from that time of worship into some very, very important things that we have scheduled for this afternoon. And we have several workshops here. And these workshops are going to be done like this. That instead of you choosing one and going off into a location, we're going to do them all together right here in this auditorium. And we're going to do them one right after the other. And maybe between these two workshops, we can have a... a uh, a, a word and a, a song. And we'll probably plan for that. Brother Tanner, you might want to keep that in mind between these songs, or maybe someone else has that chosen. I'm not sure how that is. But I want to introduce to you our brother Finney, and he has a topic here dealing with the nature of the church, the home situation where we are right here. And our text verse, you notice that, begins where we are. And that, that for you and I, that is not Jerusalem. We Most of us have not begun in Jerusalem. But where we live, that is where this all starts. Because we are witnesses. And being a witness did not necessarily mean that we must be, uh, we must buy plane tickets and we must travel long distance. Because a witness is a witness. Uh, fire is fire wherever it is. And light is light wherever it is. And I'll just simply mention here that when Jesus spoke of light in the New Testament, he always meant fire because that's the only kind of light they had in those days. And if there was light in Jesus' mind, it was fire. And where light was, there was fire. And we want fire in, in this campground too. And so it has to do with the, the local situation where we find ourselves. And we have a message here. This, this, uh, this brother's going to treat the subject, the nature of the church and, uh, aggressively and conquering with intentional strategy. That's an unusual wording. It's a powerful wording. And, and, and dear brother Clint Finney, would you please come forward? I, I suppose he is here. Please come, brother. Pray. Dear God, as our brother comes before us and he has prepared these thoughts and you've worked in his heart and the emotions and, and of your Holy Spirit are alive in his heart. And I pray that as you open his mouth to speak that you would fill it with those good things that you know we need. And Father, help us to be sensitive to the need that's closest to our hearts, the closest to ourselves, the closest to us that you brought us. And use this brother in his ministry and use him in this meditation this afternoon and use us, whoever we are, to hear these words. We would be conscious and sensitive to what we can be doing for you right close to where we live. 
And so do, do bless this dear brother as he speaks to us. And I thank you, Father, we can be here together. I just thank you that one more time we meet together here, right before your throne, in the presence of the Lord's house, in the, in the presence of thy people, O God. And feed us and teach us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's, it's great to be here this, uh, this afternoon with you. I, I feel like I know about a third of you and about a third, two thirds of you I don't recognize at all. So I'll just briefly introduce myself. I, I always appreciate it when I know a little bit about the person who's speaking to set some context. So my name is Finney Kurovilla. I'm 38 years old. Uh, I'm married. My wife is, is here, uh, and my, my four children. I have three, three small boys and a, and a daughter. Uh, you can, uh, probably tell by looking at me. I am, I am Indian. I'm ethnically Indian. Though I was born and raised in Southern California in the Los Angeles area, I moved to Boston in 1995 to go to medical school. And um, after I finished medical school, I practiced for a few years there, mostly taking care of um, cancer patients. For about four years, starting in 2008, I attended, uh, we attended very faithfully an Eastern Pennsylvania Mennonite uh, church in uh, Menden, Massachusetts. Uh, we've since left there and are part of a church plant uh, just north of Boston, about five miles north of Boston, uh, right in the city there. So uh, I'm actually going to pray one more time, uh, very briefly, and, uh, and then we'll start the message. Father, my heart is consumed with, with passion, with zeal, and I pray, Lord, that what is on my heart I communicate in a clear, in a clear manner that, that captures your heart. Father, we, we invite your Holy Spirit to be here in a, in a powerful way to make your words penetrate deep into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I remember her well. She was one of the very first patients that I ever treated. She was a young lady. She was only in her 30s. She was complaining. She had been complaining of stomach pain for a number of years, and she, she uh, was prescribed a painkiller. People thought because she was so young, it was unlikely any, to be anything so serious, and so one doctor after another gave her a variety of painkillers, thinking it was some form of maybe acid reflux or some kind of gastrointestinal virus, uh, perhaps even an ulcer, but nothing, nothing that serious. Well, the painkillers didn't really work. After a while, she, she had to go to higher and higher doses, and eventually she came into the hospital where uh, she went, underwent a CAT scan. The CAT scan showed something in her abdomen, and I remember going with her into the operating room. We opened her up and found... Uh, even though she was very slender, we found an ovarian cancer tumor in her abdomen about the size of a football. We, um, we removed it, and unfortunately, it, it had progressed so far, so fast, that she, she died shortly after um, from complications while in her 30s. The main problem that happened to her was people were looking at the symptoms rather than thinking about the root cause. What, what I want us to do in our, in our afternoon session, thinking about the church is not think about symptoms, but to think about root cause problems. I'm much more interested in root cause structural problems. A lot of people are alarmed. They'll say, oh, there's worldliness here. There's a lack of prayer there. And they'll say, oh, let's, you know, I'll pray for you or, or let's have a revival meeting, something along those lines. Those are good motivations. But often we are simply treating the symptoms of something that is a, a far deeper problem. There's a quote which I often say to myself and to others, which is um, written by a man named Henry David Thoreau. He actually lived in Massachusetts, and Thoreau said this, For every thousand people hacking at the leaves of evil, there is one striking at the root. For every thousand people hacking at the leaves of evil, there's one striking at the root. What is the root cause problem today that Christianity suffers from? I have absolutely no doubt that it is a set of structural problems within the church. It's not one, it's a few but it's a set of structural problems within the church. The church simply is not what God intended it to be. 
It has wisely been said that the church is, in fact, Jesus' evangelism program. It is the fundamental force, the fundamental means by which Jesus himself wanted his gospel to spread over the, the world. If you think about passages like John 13, uh, the, the love of the brotherhood, John 17, the, the prayer for unity. But instead, very few people think about uh, the church and would use the word unity. Very few people are, are marveled and amazed at the love that is found inside the church. There are two people, you may have heard of them, one, one's name is John Wesley, another one, his name is Charles Finney. I've spent a lot of years studying them. In fact, I edited a, a volume of sermons that Charles Finney wrote. And it's very interesting to read at the end of their lives what they said. You know, they had very uh, tremendously successful uh, revival campaigns. Both of them, at the end of their life, surveyed, surveying their whole career, bemoaned their lack of focus on the church as compared to revival. There's some very powerful writings that both Wesley and, and Charles Finney put down saying, we feel like we've failed in many ways. We've seen these individual you know, outbursts of rival, revival here and there, but we don't think that there's going to be anything sustained. And it's, it's very, very moving to, to see such great men admit with such candor their, their, their failures. If we get the church right, we get, we get much right indeed. When I was in medical school, I remember there would be these times, either when I was in, in, the, in the classroom or when I'd be reading a book, where you study something, for me, the two, my two favorite subjects that moved me to this were the immune system and the eye. You study them, and they're so perfect. They're so well-suited. You just feel like jumping up and down and, and, and singing praise to God because it's, it, it just, it's so well-suited for its purpose. The eye, how, who could have designed something? What, what mind, other than God himself, could have made something with such genius? Did you know that the church is designed by God himself to be the vehicle by which the gospel is spread throughout the whole world. The, the same level of, of exaltation that we have when looking at the eye, we should have that when we contemplate the church. Unfortunately, we don't often have that. We have the opposite impulse. We, we, uh, we're drawn to, to, to tears uh, for the failures. Now, this is a, a very vast subject. I can only speak on just a little bit of it today. I, I could easily speak for dozens of hours on this, if not hundreds of hours. Um, this is my favorite subject. Um, we're only going to scratch the surface today. Um, I, I've, I've recently uh, fin- we finished a book um, called King Jesus, uh, King Jesus Claims His Church that has a lot more detail. It's a long, dense book that covers things in, in more detail. Um, for those interested, can, can look at that. Um, we're going to look at three points today and one specific call of application about how we can be an organized, intentional church through which Jesus can conquer the world. Okay, three points and one call. Point number one. Cities are the battlegrounds of church growth. Now, for those who have read the Gospel of Matthew in totality and have studied it carefully, you know that the Gospel of Matthew is organized around five messages, five sermons that Jesus gives. Matthew takes great care to portray Jesus as this new Moses. Uh, it's very interesting, actually, to look at this. If you think about it, only Matthew records the story of, Je- of the slaughter of all the babies in Bethlehem, which is very similar to something that happened to Moses. Only Matthew records this interesting event where Jesus goes up onto a mountain and gives some commands. Very interesting. Sounds a lot like Moses, who also went up onto a mountain, Mount Sinai, and gave some commands. Uh, Just as Moses wrote five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy, uh, Matthew gives these five speeches of Jesus that he, he structures the book of Matthew around. Now, the very first of these five speeches we all know very well. It is the Sermon on the Mount. The very last of those speeches is called the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24. Uh, today, I want to just, we're not going to read uh, really any of it, but the second speech is often called the missionary sermon or the sermon of commissioning. 
Now, whenever I say that, I usually get a lot of blank stares. Very few people know even what I'm talking about when we start talking about the second one. In the plain world, in the Anabaptist world, a lot of attention has been given to the Sermon on the Mount for very good reason. It's my favorite as well. But this second sermon is extremely important, and most people don't know about the structure, don't know how it's organized, and don't know how important it is. Now, in this sermon of commissioning, which is, which is, uh, or this missionary sermon, which is in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus describes how he envisions his church progressing to the ends of the earth. It's, it's Jesus' ministry model, not, not mine. And he describes how he wants his disciples to go from city to city, finding a, a person of peace who will take them in. Uh, they will be persecuted, they'll be kicked out, and they'll go to another city, and there's this, there's this pattern that is, that is given there. And, and he says, and Jesus says in verse 23 that, that his disciples won't finish going through the, the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. This is described as going up to the very end of time, this going from city to city to city until the Son of Man comes. At the end of the sermon, this missionary sermon, Jesus, uh, Matthew writes, Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his twelve disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Uh, that's Matthew 11.1. 1. So Jesus gives, gives this message, and then after he gives it, he demonstrates it by example. Jesus often does that. He gives the words, and then it says that Jesus himself went off to teach and preach in their cities. Okay, so that's the, that's the climax of it. In Luke 4.43, Jesus says, I must, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. Huh, interesting. Jesus describes the purpose that he has been sent, to preach and to teach in the cities. Now, a lot of people don't understand what Israel was like at that time. We imagine these very sort of sparsely populated um, places with dusty roads and Jesus traveling through it. There's a, there's a historian whose name is Josephus, and Josephus describes uh, what Israel was like in the first century. He's a rough contemporary to, to the uh, apostles. I'll read you a quote from uh, one of his books. He says, talking about Galilee, Moreover, the cities here are very thick, and the very many villages there are here are everywhere so full of people by the richness of their soil that the very least of them contain about 15,000 inhabitants. Uh, so the small cities in Galilee had 15,000 people. When, when I, I wanted to talk, I talked to one of the ladies in the office here, and I said, what's the closest city to where, I, where we are here? And she said, Shippensburg. So I, I looked up Shippensburg population, and it's, it's 5,500. Shippensburg wouldn't even have been on the map in, in Galilee in Jesus' time. This was a very, very urban area that Jesus was traveling around, um, far, far different than I think how most people envision it. Now, he gave us this paradigm. Did the apostles do it? Well, it's very interesting. When you go and read in the book of Acts, um, and I wish we had a whole hour just to talk about this. I have a message just on this. But if you go and look in a, in a secular history book and, and write out what are, and read what are the top most populous cities of the empire. I'm going to read you this list. It's the, it's the eight largest cities of the Roman Empire, from largest to smallest. And as I read this list, try to see which of those is described in the New Testament as having a church. Okay? Number one, Rome. Number two, Alexandria. Number three, Ephesus. Number four, Antioch. Number five, Apamea. Number six, Pergamum. Number seven, Sardis. Number eight, Corinth. If you, if you paid attention to that, um, the only ones that aren't specifically mentioned as having churches in the New Testament are Alexandria and Apamea. I was talking to David Brousseau. David Brousseau thinks that there was even a church in the New Testament times, in, at least in Alexandria. But at least six out of the eight largest cities of the Roman Empire, within about 40 years of the resurrection, had established churches there. Okay, Six out of eight, 75%. There's a, there's a, a publishing firm, a Christian publishing firm called Christian Light. They're based in, I think, Virginia. And they, um, they publish a directory of uh, plain churches. So I, I got my hands on this directory. I did this exercise last year. It might not be the most recent version. And Christian Light enumerates 
408 churches in the United States, and it gives you the, you know, the addresses and cities and all that. So I, I took this list, and I, I got a list of the 100 largest cities in the United States. Um, you can get these lists very easily. Just to calibrate you, the largest city is New York. The, the, the 100th largest city is Rochester, New York, population 210,000. So I took these 100 largest cities here, and I took this list of 408 churches here, and I said, how many of these churches, these plain churches, are within a 10-mile radius of the 100 largest cities in America? The reason I picked 10 miles is that city driving is slow. There's a lot of traffic. If you drive 10 miles in the city, you're probably talking 30 to 45 minutes, which is about the limit that most people are, are willing to, to tolerate to drive to, to a church. So I did this exercise. took me a long time with all 408 churches in all 100 cities. Well, as it turns out, out of America's 100 largest cities, only two cities have a, a church, according to this Christian Light Directory, within 10 miles of the city. Two. Two out of 100 is 2%. I just told you that Within 40 years, in the first century church, they achieved 75% of the top eight. The plain people, far more numerous, having a couple of hundred years, are at 2%. There is something gravely, gravely wrong about this picture. That, that number should break your heart. That number should, should tell you. The Sermon of Commissioning and the pattern of the book of Acts tell us something is fundamentally wrong. Another way you can, another misunderstanding I want to quickly clear up before moving on is a little bit about what these cities were like. Again, we, we, have, we have such wrong ideas about what the nature of these cities, and, and we, we, we totally don't understand what they're like. Uh, one of the ways that people measure cityness is the density. Not so much the total population, but how many people are in a given square area. And um, that, that's a good reflection for a lot of reasons on a variety of sociologic phenomenon. Um, and again, just to calibrate you, we're here in the state of Pennsylvania. This state has half a person per acre. So if you average, take the whole whole population, calculate how many acres there are, Pennsylvania has half a person per acre. If you go to Philadelphia, Philadelphia has 18 people per acre. Quite a bit more, makes sense. Chicago, a little bit more dense of a city, has 21 people per acre. New York, a little bit more dense of a city, has 37 people per acre. And New York, I think as all of us know, has five boroughs. The, The most dense borough is Manhattan. Manhattan has 100 people per acre. It's the largest in the United States. Now, if you go outside the United States to, to my ancestral homeland, India, there's a city called Calcutta. Calcutta has 122 people per acre. doesn't have the high rises that New York has either. Um, another c- city um, called Bombay or Mumbai has a 183 people per acre. Okay, And again, it's not the, the acreage. Now, there's, there's a variety of estimates that people have made on all the cities I just read to you. The most important city for, for a variety of reasons, the most important two cities are probably Antioch and Rome. Antioch, if you remember from your... Your New Testament studies was the site that all three missionary journeys were launched from. Hopefully you know that from studying your Bible. And um, Antioch was the place where, where uh, followers of Jesus were first called Christians. A variety of estimates have been made on Antioch. I'm giving you the lowest number. The lowest estimate of the density of Antioch was 195 people per acre. Uh, so again, don't have, they don't have the skyscrapers. There's livestock. There's a lot of conditions. This was where the gospel took root, and this is where the gospel flourished. There's a there's a minister who has a great saying. He says, the cityer the city, the more the true gospel flourished. Uh, I think all of you know, hopefully you know, even the etymology of our words heathen. Heathen means people of the heath, people who lived in the villages. It was the fact that the Christians were the ones who were in the cities. Pagan comes from the Latin word paganus, country dweller. The cities, uh, the, the Christians, the cities rather, were the site, the, the places where the Christians took root. Now, I was raised in the Protestant churches. 
Um, I, I spent most of my life in the Protestant churches. I'm, I'm extremely well-connected in that world. I worked in Christian radio for three years. My, I'm a, the son of a missionary. Um, because I'm the son of a missionary, we would travel around almost every Sunday to different churches from California to New York. We would go to Baptist churches, Methodist churches, charismatic churches. And my, my dad was trying to raise support, and, he is, and it's still going on to, for a Bible college that is in India. Now, if you had asked me, at the height of my knowledge, maybe, you know, say I was in, in the height of my time in the Protestant uh, churches, maybe it was in my late 20s, early 30s, and you, had, and you had asked me, so Finney, tell me about the Anabaptists, what they believe, do you know who they are, you know, where are they, tell me a little bit about them. I would have said, I have no idea. I just, I don't know, I don't think I've ever seen one, I'm not sure if I have, certainly they're not where I am, never heard them, don't know what their message is, don't know what they stand for. What I, what I say in a somewhat facetious way, although it, I say it in a way that is, breaks my heart because I see myself as standing in the stream of, of the Anabaptists is that instead of being a city on a hill, we're a village in a valley. Totally obscure, few people, certainly in strategic locations, even know who they are. Now, while the modern Anabaptists rightly cling to doctrines like non-resistance and separation, good doctrines, we, we need to embrace those. They come from places like the Sermon on the Mount. We collectively dramatically have neglected the, the New Testament paradigm in many other areas of life. In fact, compared to other Christian groups, the Anabaptists, the modern Anabaptists, are actually more Old Testament than many other Christian groups. I mentioned one here. So if you if you do that same exercise about the hundred cities and look at Mormons, look at Protestant groups, look at uh, synagogues, every single one of those cities will be covered by those groups, right? Every one. Now. I'm not going to get into other areas of neglect, New Testament neglect. I have a message that I gave last year at um, uh, Anabaptist Identity Conference called Autopsy of a Dead Church, which covers another very important area where the Anabaptists are very much on the Old Testament side of things, um, message on fence around the Torah. I won't talk about that today. I want to conclude this first point by just saying one, one final thing about cities. Cities are places where, in order, in order to succeed there, you generally have to be more excellent and function at a higher level. Why, why do I say that? People there tend to be more well-educated, they tend to be a little more skeptical. Uh, unfortunately, I think if we put a lot of our young people in front of, take them to Harvard and have them talk to some of the Harvard students there, I think that most of our, the young people here would just get demolished. They would not, they would not fare very well in front of that kind of, uh, that kind of firepower. And, and yet, of course, we see that the gospel, you know, Paul was able to successfully go to places like Mars Hill in, in Athens, uh, and, and, and present the gospel in a bold and powerful way before the, the brightest of the bright. Similarly, cities tend to be strongholds of the demonic. They tend to be very evil, wicked places. Um, Calcutta, I mentioned that city before, is named after the goddess Kali. It's a, it's a goddess of death. It is a city filled with spiritual bondage, demonic activity. How many, do we feel a confidence that we could go into such a city and conduct the appropriate type of spiritual warfare to, to, to bind some of those tremendous powers? I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I have that confidence. Uh, the final quote I just want to read on this section is, do your work well for the glory of God, do your work strategically for the mission of God. Okay, so that's the first point. The second point is how our churches are organized and governed is vital for growth. Now, one of the things that, that I've encountered far too often is that many people, as soon as they hear the subject of governance and organization, their eyes roll back of their head. They think, oh, it's so boring. This is just such dry theology. You know, I just want Jesus. Uh, I just want fire, I just want passion, all this stuff, structure, whatever, I don't, I don't care about that. Maybe they've seen examples of deadness in, in Roman Catholic churches and various denominational structures, and they're sick of it. They want a, a much more, quote, simple way of thinking about things, and so they go the, quote, independent way, or the emergent church way, or the, you know, and some, sometimes they go to kind of a, a house church type model where it's very a- anarchist. There's very little or no structure. It's a huge, colossal mistake. 
for being organized and for having an intentional strategy. What do I mean by this? Well, imagine a person saying, I, I don't care about how the parts of my car are arranged so long as I have fuel, right? Let's just take all the parts of my car, throw them in a big pile and dump some fuel on it. Well, you know what? You wouldn't get to, you wouldn't get very far, would you? And unfortunately, sometimes I feel like that. I feel like, I feel like there's so much anti-structuralism that it's like the church is almost like this piece of jello that's kind of quivering, but it's going nowhere. It's just doing nothing. It's just a big blob that's kind of mushy and you can kind of push it and you just don't even know what to, what to think about it. Now, I, I deal a lot with this subject in the book. Um, I hope you can, can read it and we don't have time to get into the two extremes and how to navigate through that. But one thing that is, is very important is that the New Testament, again, gives us a clear paradigm, a clear pattern that very few groups are implementing. Very few groups. And it's tragic. Uh, when uh, at, at various times in, in the history of the church, when there have been these revivals, people have, have uh, sort of read the Bible and said, wow, our church structure is so different. Some of you may know the name John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe um, is, is most well-known for his work in Bible translation. Uh, he was a very brilliant man. He was, a, he was a professor at Oxford in the 14th century. And Wycliffe, when he was doing this translation, came to this epiphany that the, the whole structure of the church was organized wrong, and he began to advocate a different structure. Well, Wycliffe died, and the, the, the Roman Catholic Church started contemplating this so much, and they started, they started contemplating this, and they hated this teaching so much. Get this, they dug up his bones and burned his bones after he was dead. Okay, And, and one of the charges that was read against him was this. Um, it was, they were quoting from Wycliffe. Wycliffe said, In the time of St. Paul, only two orders of clerks did suffice the church. You know, the Catholic Church had this vast structure of hierarchy and all the rest, and Wycliffe was arguing for a more New Testament model. They hated it. So they, they dug up his bones and they burned his bones. Um, I wish we could talk about that. Um, we, won't, we won't talk about that. But I want to talk about one specific element of, of governance here for the purposes of, of this, this message. And maybe I'll throw this out. Have you ever noticed that the word missionary is never used in the Bible? Isn't that interesting? Um, why is that? Why? We use it all the time. I use it all the time. Uh, the word missionary is never used in the Bible. And, and I'm convinced it's because... It, it, it actually is described there. It's described more in a collective, church-driven function. But the word that is actually used in the New Testament to describe missionary is actually the word apostle. Now, the word apostle has two very different meanings. There's one meaning. It's the 12 personally chosen by Jesus, a once-for-all group. They wrote the canon, never to be repeated again. But the same word apostle is used to describe Barnabas. It's used to describe Timothy. It's used to describe Silas. It's used to describe Epaphroditus. People who are clearly not part of the 12, and they were called apostles. Now, to make it clear, I like to use the word messenger, another translation of the word apostle, to describe the second group, as just to distinguish from the first 12, because it can be confusing and prideful to, to, uh, to interchange the two. So I use the term messenger. Now, these messengers had a few functions. If you think about it, what did they do? They were heavily involved in evangelism. They planted churches, and they helped establish local leadership, local leadership in those churches. Then they would circulate between the churches after they were established. They didn't just say, hey, bye-bye, I'm going my own way. They would, they would return and circulate to, to ensure that there was doctrinal unity and faithful obedience. And then the final function that these, these messengers would do is they would organize funds for the needy churches. You remember the, whole, the famine in Jerusalem and that mission, uh, that, that project that they did there. Now, these four functions, these four functions of the messengers are vital today. Uh, I, I wish we had a lot of time to go onto this, but what I'm, what I, at least what I call in the book is the collection of churches with the attendant elders and deacons with these circulating messengers. I call it an international brotherhood that tries to avoid some of the errors of denominationalism on the one side 
and then yet some of the heirs of the fully independent movement on the other side. Now, this is incredibly important to navigate these two for, for a few reasons. I remember when I was in graduate school, I was, uh, one of my lab mates, uh, was a Mormon. And he, um, he was not from the Boston area, and he moved in without doing anything. He didn't know anybody there. There were people to meet him at the airport, people to move him in, people to help him with everything. They brought meals. They did this whole, they had this whole thing. He just showed up in the city and said, hey, I'm a, I'm a member of LDS, the Latter-day Saints. And the whole thing was taken care of. And, and it reminded me a little bit of what Jesus said in Mark 10, where he talked about how disciples in this life will receive houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. Right? And, and I'm convinced that one of the reasons the Mormons have done so well, they have these wacky doctrines, things that you, you, you just amazing that any, to me, that any intelligent person would believe them. But the, the reason that they have succeeded is because they have this incredible network that they have developed where people can go between city to city and they recognize, hey, I'm not just joining the city, this little church down the street. I'm joining a vast international <coughs> network of churches. And they have done a much better job at that. The independent churches, certainly on the Protestant side of things, have absolutely failed and done abysmally there. If we don't think about how to achieve <coughs> this, this kind of level of, of, of love, of compassion, of, of service to really bring this all out and to ensure that we are, in fact, building something that's not just one little tiny thing over here, but we're part of something much bigger for all the reasons I described, accountability, doctr- doctrinal unity, etc., we will fail. Jesus' prayer for unity. These are all so tied in with these ideas of organization and governance. Okay, the, the third point which I'm going to make is that young people are the best gauge of the health of a church and the primary means for its advance. Okay, Young people are the best gauge of the health of a church and the primary means for its advance. So who can tell me what happened on January 21, 1525? You should all know this date. If you don't know this date, I'll be very disappointed. Ephraim. That's right. And and they baptized one another, if you remember. So this was the day that believer's baptism was brought into the modern world. Um, and it was most people regarded this as sort of the birthday of Anabaptism. A very important day. January 21, 1525. Now, uh, one of the things that probably most of you don't even appreciate about this, I, I love reading early Anabaptist history. You know, it's so funny. When I when I go to um when I go to Mennonite churches or Pointy churches, I often find that most people have never read Grebel or Sattler or Menno Simons, things like that. I, I've spent a lot of time reading them, and I just love it, and I eat it up, and I drink it. And I talk to even ministers and people there, and I just get these blank looks. And I think, I don't have a drop of Mennonite blood in me. You all have been in this for a lot longer, and how is it that I know all these things that you should be cherishing and holding on to? It's a whole other subject, but um, anyways, um, here's an interesting fact that I noticed when I looked at that. So I, I calculated, I said, okay, well, wait a minute. Who are the big three leaders in that, in that room? Their names were Conrad Grubble, Felix Mons, and George Blaurock. There were others, as Ephraim just mentioned, but those were the most recognized, those are the three most prominent leaders. So I said, well, let's think about who they were and how old they were. Uh, George Blaurock was 30 years old. Conrad Grubble and Felix Mons were 27. Uh, Harold S. Bender, who's the, who's one of the great Mennonite uh, scholars, uh, um, he, he describes uh, Grubble as the leader of the group. We have this image of this group as these men as being these old gray-haired men with the long beards and kind of, you know, ruminating on this. It was a lot more like a young 20s sort of group doing a Bible study. That's really what it was. Get out of your head, this idea of these old men. It was young people who spilled their blood. My, my favorite of all the early leaders was Michael Sattler. Um, my, one of my boys is Ethan Sattler. Uh, Michael Sattler wrote the, Schle- the Schleitheim Confession and... Uh, 
tremendous, tremendous person. If you haven't, if you haven't studied him, very worthwhile to do. The, um, uh, he was in his 30s when he did the Schleifheim Confession and was, was killed there. Interestingly, the, the Hutterite Chronicles note that he was fluent in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, and he gave his whole trial defense in Latin. Now, here's a question I want to ask you parents. How many of your children can you say, no, any Hebrew, any Greek, and are competent in this? Conrad Grebel was a very well-regarded scholar of Greek. Now, it's sad to say that there are some exceptions in here, and I, one of the reasons why I like coming here is because some of the exceptions are here. Most people in the plain world, I, I look at the young people and I think, what is impressive about this? That your forefathers, they, they could do this. He gave this whole trial defense in Latin? Can you imagine doing that? Being, being, being one of the, the premier uh, biblical exegetes, these were the, the original ancestors of the Anabaptists. Now, now I, have, um, I love young people. I've spent about 15 years working with a group called InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which is a, more of a Protestant-type group. Uh, I'm no longer affiliated with it, but uh, they, they primarily work with college students. And, and I'm convinced that the future of the church is in its young people. Most people, they blame the young people for things when the problem is actually with the parents and the church. Um, and, and I'm here today to try to sort of get at some of these deeper problems, not just lay, lay blame on the symptoms. One of the things that I'm very grateful to from, from my experience in these, um, in these groups was how much I got to see uh, excellence it, with my educational background. It was excellence. I, I, um, when I was a student, I got to interact with many, um, many Nobel laureates. If you know the Nobel Prize, it's the highest award that you can win in, in the sciences. At the, at the school where I did my, uh, I did a PhD in chemistry as well before I finished my medical work. There were several Nobel laureates and I remember working with them and spending time with them. And the thing that, that I always, always, always was left with was these people have a ferocious, unrelenting, determined desire to be the best. The way that you get to the, that level is not by accident. Every single one of these people's, people, they, they work like, like animals. They're so consumed with, with their, uh, with their work. Um, again, things I don't do anymore. But when I was when I was in college, I played um, I played on the tennis team. I actually played NCAA tennis. And um, I remember I would walk out onto the court sometimes, and and you, you you stand across and you see these people who you're playing with, and a lot of times you would lose before you even hit the first ball because the look in their eyes, the, the, I mean the, gl- the the glint, the ferocity. I, I mean I was scared. You just you walk out and and you you can't imagine, and it's because. They have the confidence, the years they've, they've sort of put into this. Now, when, what I want to ask is, where is the ferocity? Where is the glint in the eye? That, that's what I want to see in every young person. I want to see that, you know, the world does all these things for, for foolishness. And who cares about tennis matches and Nobel Prizes? Those things are all doomed to destruction. I want to see an equally ferocious, a greater intensity, rather, um, in, in our, in our young people today. I, um, you know, one of the things that, that, um, that, that as I, as I think about how, how to accomplish this, you know, maybe I'll tell one, one, two quick personal things before moving on to the application. I, as I mentioned, I'm ethnically Indian, and in the Indian culture, one of the things that's very highly prized is academic accomplishment. Education is just, that is the absolute top. And, um, I, children will read to their parents from when they're six months old, they'll put them through every type of Educate, I mean, they want to be the best. And so many Indians today are doctors and engineers and things like that because of their parents. There's a, um, there's a, 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 a competition which I think is very representative of this. There's a national spelling bee championship, which I find interesting. I don't, I don't watch it or anything like that. But, um, Indians are about 1% of the population of America. Every year they do this national competition of thousands of high school students. And 
In six out of the six last years, the number one person has been an Indian, even though we're only 1% of the population. Last year, number one, number two, and number three were all Indians. And a lot of people say that, and they say, how is that possible? You know, is it something genetic? And I always say, no, no, I know exactly what it is. It's because from the time we were babies, it was put into our minds that this is what excellence looks like. This is how you work hard. Man, my, my parents, they work like, like dogs. I mean, they, they work so hard at, um, at, at, the, at the various tasks of their life. And I caught it. I caught every single one of those, those, those traits. And the reason that I was able to succeed academically, I'm sure it was because I had a tremendous sort of implant in my mind about what excellence was. Now, thankfully, my father, being a missionary, I, the very first memory I have of my whole life, the absolute first memory I have, I think I was three or four, I remember going around with him, and he would do a lot of door-to-door evangelism. He would sit with people at their tables and explain the Bible. And I can remember as a little boy, just sitting next to him, I had no idea what they were talking about. But I would see him go back and forth and with great skill explain to people the Bible and witness. And that got deep into me as well. Now, I have no idea what what the first memory is will be of my children or of you. But may it be that we establish a culture, not of academic excellence or business excellence or whatever kind of excellence. May it be gospel excellence. May may we be able to foster yet another generation of of the Grebels and the and the Monzes and the Blaurocks. Okay. So I want to I want to conclude with um oh and just to say one last thing on that before the application messengers and evangelists tend to be young or single. If you look, people like Timothy, people like Paul, the, this expansion of the church it's often predicated it's on the back of people who who are exactly in the situation. We need young people desperately. So I want to conclude with just a little bit of application. I am convinced that this is this this decade that we are in now is the decisive decade of our time. Everywhere I go when I talk to people. I'm convinced that there is what I call a holy discontent that is stirring. People are, are looking at themselves, or looking around, they're saying, is this really how things are supposed to be? Is this really what God intends us to have? All over. And, and not just in, in plain groups. The, outside of that, I'm seeing this again and again and again. And it, it feels like a moment that is just waiting to have an ex- explosion out of it. When, when you, uh, in, in chemistry, you know, you can take a, you can take a dish, uh, and uh, uh, sorry, a beaker, and fill it with a solution, and put something in it that will normally make a crystal. And you dissolve, and you dissolve it up, and you dissolve it until you can't get any more in it. And then you start evaporating the liquid, and eventually you get something that's called a supersaturated solution. And when you get a supersaturated solution, all that it takes is just a tiny little seed of a crystal, and then like that, the whole thing crystallizes. It's very beautiful to watch if you've never seen it. I feel a little bit like that now. We're at this super saturated moment of holy discontent. We're waiting for a few catalysts. I believe Kingdom Fellowship is a key, key catalyst in this overall program, which is one of the reasons why I've, I've come for the last three years. Uh, I believe that something like an international brotherhood is forming. Now, one of the things I want to clarify is, you know, Jesus says uh, in, in Acts, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. We all know that, right? It's a very familiar passage. There's a tremendous misunderstanding that many people have about that. The misunderstanding is that they think that Jerusalem is like starting at home, and then Judea is a little bit bigger, Samaria, right? That's totally wrong. If you remember, when Peter was in Jerusalem, do you remember around the fire they said, hey, you're a foreigner here, you've got a funny accent. You remember that? The, the, the apostles were Galileans, they weren't from Jerusalem. So when we hear that, we think Galilee, uh, Samaria, the ends of the earth. That's not what it is. It's Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Jesus, at the very start of, of their ministry, had them go in places where they were stretched. They didn't fit in. The apostles had their funny accents. They weren't native uh, uh, natives of Jerusalem. They were natives of Galilee. 
We need to make sure that at the start of our enterprise, we are not comfortable. We are supposed to be a little bit out of our element. It's not the ends of the earth, but we start off a little bit out of our element. Now, here's here's why I'm saying this. I am very, very excited about ABT. I am very, very excited. I'm a, I'm a, as I say, I'm the son of a missionary. I, I, I truly believe that we need to think internationally deeply. But let me say this, and, and mark these words carefully. If, if we have generally failed in the United States, I'm not, I'm worried about exporting failure abroad. If we don't get things right here, what, what's the, what's the point of just creating more disappointment abroad? We, we've got to make sure that we get it right here. Now, for every one person who goes abroad, more people will stay, realistically. And what my challenge to all of you today here, and, and listen carefully to this, is think about stretching. Don't, don't think about just doing the same thing as you know, you've always done, that it's gone. Think about stretching. Think about what that Jerusalem is. Now, for most of us, like me, I'm not from Boston originally, most of us, I think we, 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 our calling will be to be stretched in some other major city of the United States. And what, what I, my hope is that among us, I'm calling it 10 cities in 10 years, I would love for us to see within 10 years there be a vibrant kingdom church in at least 10 major cities in the United States. Um, so we're, we're, we started with Boston. I mentioned we, we moved there a few months ago for this effort. Boston is very strategic because it has a lot of young people, a lot of students, a lot of universities. There are many cities, those who have an interest in, in um, uh, who speak Spanish, who have a burden for the Hispanic, Miami and Houston are great places. Um, we need San Francisco. We need New York. We need Washington, D.C. We need to coordinate among ourselves. We need to think about what does it look like to have this international brotherhood? What does it mean to have circulating messengers? Can we actually do this? I believe we can. Once we get it right here, let's show some growth. Let's make sure that we're actually doing well. We're not fighting with ourselves and having disunity. We're actually progressing in a vibrant way. Then let's begin to set our sights on the ends of the earth. And let's think about the strategic cities outside the United States. Uh, I think there's, we should be thinking about London. We should be thinking about Jerusalem, Shanghai, Tokyo, Sao Paulo, Cairo, Nairobi. There's some very important cities that we need to address once we get this right. This is the moment. Now, I am not going to ask anybody to come to, come to this altar or do anything like that. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But generally speaking, I am, I am a man who's weary of words. I like to see action. What I want to see, uh, I would love for as many people who are interested in this vision to certainly read this book. Um, uh, this book costs, it costs me $10. I don't want to make any, any money off that. If you promise to read it and write me a note or email after it, you can have it for free. If you, if you don't make that promise, you can buy it for $10. Um, <laughs> then um, start thinking about what is a New Testament vision. Not, not a tradition, you know, the vision that you might think of, but what is a New Testament vision? I, I bent over backwards in this book to try to draw out what a New Testament vision really looks like. Don't compromise because of inertia or tradition. God is stirring. God is at work. Will you heed the call? I, I want to see us form an international brotherhood that ensures the knowledge of the Lord covers over this planet like the waters cover the sea. We can do it. I have no doubt. When that, when that crystal hits that supersaturated solution, it can go like that. It needs to be lived out. It needs to be done. We need people of action. It can be done. Who will join me in this? I want us to, to close by, um, by praying. And, um, at the end, I'll be, uh, after the second session, Brother Harold will be speaking next. I'll stand in the back. There's a bunch of the books I have in the back for those who want to talk. I'm, I'm interested to get specific names and email addresses and thoughts on Making this concrete, again, I don't care about just words or promises. I want, I want to hear, think about clear action steps. I, will, I would love to speak with those among you who 
who have the glint in your eye, who have that ferocious vision. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is such an amazing moment in history. Lord, I, I have no doubt in my mind that, that you have set the stage for, for your people to willingly offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Father, Jesus is king who reigns over all this earth, and may we be faithful ambassadors who can faithfully proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to every nation and tribe. Father, I pray for the young men, for the young women here. Lord, stir their hearts. Stir the old men. Stir the, stir the old women. Stir us, God. May, may, we, may we convert our zeal into concrete, organized, intentional discipleship. May we convert this into organized, organized intentional church planning. Oh, Father, have mercy on us. Forgive us for the fact that we stand here in such a comfortable place, in, in a place where there are so many believers, and yet there are so many millions of people. When I think about India, when I think about how long it has been before any kingdom witness has been presented, and before even millions and millions of them, Lord, it is... It, our, our shame, our shame ascends to the skies. Father, forgive us. Lord, wh- what are we doing? Father, please have mercy on us. Stir us. Give us your spirit. Raise up a new generation of men and women who will go out and be faithful ambassadors of your kingdom to every corner of this globe. We pray these things in the name of the mighty King Jesus. Amen.